Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 17, reading from verse 20. Jesus had just been praying for himself and for his disciples, and he continues, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. No one would plan a virtual service as a way of catching up with old friends, never mind meeting new ones, but it's the best that regulations allow. So. Uh, I'm very grateful to Pete for inviting me to open the scriptures for you today, and I'm doing it from down here in Cheltenham where Claire and I uh, are in retirement. Uh, Let me pray before we look at the Bible. Gracious God, you promised that your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, and we pray it will be just that for us this morning. For your name's sake, amen. I do pray for you, he said, and I try to look grateful as I said thank you, but like many of us, uh, we've heard something like that. Uh, In fact, most of us have probably said something like that before, and there hasn't been that much prayer behind it. But then he went on, I pray for you every Monday. And I was grateful, and I have been grateful, and I am grateful. He's done it for many, many years now. And it's a great encouragement every Monday to know that even if I'm on cloud nine, there's someone praying that I'll walk humbly with our God. Or if I'm a train wreck, there's someone praying that I'll walk the godly path with the Lord. That I'll serve him faithfully and fruitfully. It's a huge privilege to be on the receiving end of a prayer like that. But here's a a greater privilege, and it's one for all of us if we're followers of the Lord Jesus. We've had him praying for us. Throughout this chapter, John 17, Jesus has been facing the cross, and he knows it's just round the corner, and yet he knows it's not the end. And so he's been praying for his friends and disciples around him. And when we catch up with him in verse 20, he's praying 
for the next generations too. Look, you see how it goes. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples around him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, through the apostolic message, the, the New Testament gospel message that has made us believers in Jesus. I mean, we may not have begun by reading the words off the pages of the New Testament. They may have been told us by friends or family members. But however we've heard the message, behind it all is Jesus praying for us. A prayer that stretches across the ages, right up to now, reaches us in the 21st century. Well, if Jesus has been praying for you and for me, what has he been praying? His believers are people on a journey, and here is where Jesus has them heading. Two or three stops that make our destination. And the first is this. And Jesus prays for the church to be united. I mean, you can't really miss that theme in his prayer, can you? Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. Now, Jesus doesn't seem to be thinking of institutional or organizational unity, though I can't imagine he had in mind that there might be the hundreds and thousands of denominations in Protestantism today. But he's not speaking so much of structural unity here as spiritual unity. Verse 22, that they may be one as we, Father and Son, are one. And what's striking is that this unity begins with a unity with the apostles. As Jesus prays for church unity, there's no deviating from the apostolic teaching. Look back to verse 20 again. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that they may be one. They are the apostle message believing disciples. It's the apostles' words that define the Christian church and give us our unity. When John writes his first letter, he makes much the same point even more strongly. He starts his letter talking about the Jesus that they had seen and heard, they'd looked at and touched even. And then he goes on, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with, uh, and I'm writing in, may have fellowship with God. But John says, so that you may have fellowship with us, the apostolic band. And our fellowship, he says, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's how you come into relationship with God himself, by being at one with the apostles. There is a common truth that gives boundaries to the Christian church. And we're not free, you see, to pluck an understanding from our head, our reasoning, or from our heart, our feelings, our experiences. I can't just self-identify as one of God's people. I must share the common truth that shapes us. I must be at one with the apostles and their teaching. But the church is united, though, not just because we share a common truth, 
but because it leads to a common life. Not just because we're united to the apostles, but united to the Godhead. And how? You saw how Jesus prayed? Verse 21. May they also be in us, God the Father and God the Son. May they be one as we are one, I in them and you, Father, in me. In other words, may they, may Christian disciples be as united as the Father is with his Son. Or verse 26, the love you have for me, may it be in them, and that I myself may be in them. You see, the apostolic message doesn't just lead me to some kind of sterile understanding where I can say, I've got God right. It has to lead to the life of God himself, the love of God himself flowing in our veins. There's an intimacy here that I've been slow to pick up on and experience. And it's not just God in me, notice, it's God in us. It's all plural. They in us, Jesus prays. They be one as we are one. The love in them. Now, Jesus is praying that the church may be united. But when he prays for the church to be united, when people call for Christian unity, don't let them water down the apostles' message or relegate it down the priorities. It's our fellowship with the apostles that brings us into relationship with the Father and the Son. And don't allow any old experience to be baptized and qualify us as Christian without the life and the love of the Godhead shaping our living together. It's those united with the apostles and united with God that Jesus prays will be united with one another. He prays for the church to be united. Secondly, he prays for the world to be persuaded. If Jesus' dominant concern as he prays is for his church, his people, he also has a passion for the world. What marks them out, what distinguishes the world from believers in Jesus is made clear in verse 25. You see how he prays there? Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you. They say this pandemic, this virus, may be no respecter of persons and it can reach anyone, but they also say, don't they, that it's actually exposed the fault lines in our society in the UK. The haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor, it's actually hit them differently. But... Here is the deepest fault line in any society between those who do and those who do not know God. I was invited years ago to speak at an outreach dinner. You know, it was one of those occasions where they took over a restaurant, we had a great meal, and somewhere between the main course and the, the pudding, I was put up just for a quarter of an hour to tell something of the Christian gospel. And when I sat down again afterwards, uh, the person next to me, I'm sure he'd been strategically positioned there, and he wasn't a, a believer himself, uh, started asking me questions. 
when did I become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? And then what difference did becoming a Christian make? And I started to try and answer that question and talk about changing attitudes to other people. And the minister of the church, who was the other side of me, just kept saying in my ear, he said, and you know God, Hugh, and you know God. And I kind of nodded rather dismissively. He said, yes, I know God, and went back to talking about the change of attitudes to other people. But the minister was right. The great difference is I know the living God. Uh, there's not a reason to be smug because it's not as if we worked him out and it's not a reason to keep the privilege to ourselves look how Jesus prays he prays for the unity of the church verse 21 so that the world may believe you've sent me he prays for the unity of the church verse 23 then the world will know you sent me in other words, so that the world is persuaded about Jesus. Now, don't abandon what we've already learned about unity. Don't fall for the line that the world will believe if only churches would forget their uh, apostolic convictions and merge together. Uh, don't fall for the thing where in the name of evangelism we lose the gospel. But don't let unity become a priority divorced from any others, a goal in itself and kept for ourselves so it can fester and spoil. Watch the trajectory of Jesus' prayer. The church he prays for is outward looking. It's got a world to win. And winning it involves proclamation. Look at verse 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The world is persuaded through proclamation, but also through loving lives. Verse 26. The love you, Father, have for me, Son, Jesus prays, the love you have for me, may it be in them, disciples like you and me, and that I myself may be in them. See, his prayer is that the Father's love for the Son will be reproduced in the congregation. I met um, Bishop Stephen Neal once. He had a brain as big as, well, it's one of the biggest brains I've ever come across. I'm told that in one university mission week at an American university, he lectured in 11 different faculties about the relationship between Christianity and that faculty subject. You'd think he'd be fully into preaching, proclamation, apologetics. Well, he was. But he knew the value of loving lives, too. Listen to what he wrote, echoing Jesus' prayer. Within the fellowship of those who are bound together by personal loyalty to Jesus Christ... The bishop said, the relationship of love reaches an intimacy and intensity unknown elsewhere. Friendship between the friends of Jesus of Nazareth is unlike any other friendship. This ought to be normal experience within the Christian community. Where it is experienced, especially across barriers of race, nationality and language, it's one of the most convincing evidences of the continuing activity of Jesus among men. And Bruce Milne, 
a pastor who also wrote on John's gospel, writes about the other side of the coin and puts it very starkly. The biggest barriers to effective evangelism, he wrote, the biggest barriers, according to the prayer of Jesus, are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, every other form of lovelessness. These are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism, he goes on, which render the gospel fruitless, send countless thousands into eternity without a saviour. We need to look no further to understand why the church's impact on the community is frequently so minimal in spite of the greatness of our message. Now, he's not saying the church should be perfect or that wrongs should be ignored or covered up. Uh, they need to be faced and confessed to, repented of and forgiven. But he is looking to see this love in any congregation. Some of us, we find proclamation, teaching, even just talking about our faith difficult, don't we? All of us, I suspect, find this love challenging. But it is our essential calling to show it. It's our privilege to experience it. It's our responsibility to demonstrate it to the watching world. And Jesus is praying for the church to be united and the world to be persuaded. And thirdly, for the mission to be completed. I mean, Jesus prays in such a way that he knows how long a journey lies ahead. It looks as if it's mission impossible, but he's determined to reach the destination with mission completed. Now, there's nothing half-hearted, is there, about his praying? Look at these last two paragraphs. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. I mean, Jesus looks ahead knows there has to be separation for a while, but insists it can't be mission completed without his disciples from across the ages being with him where I am. I mean, it's the love of, language of love, isn't it, which wants loved ones to be with me. It's the language we've heard during this pandemic uh, again and again. People unable to see loved ones, longing to be with them, longing for them to be with me. There isn't anything mechanical or just dutiful about this prayer. This is heart longing. I want, you don't often hear Jesus praying like that, I want them to be with me where I am. And he goes on in verse 24, and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. All that's stored up for Jesus, the eternal glory, the substance, the weight, the character fully revealed, he wants to share with us a glory we see, enjoy, a part of. So here's Jesus praying 
with the cross looming larger and larger in front of him. And his prayers insist on going way beyond the cross to its purposes to fulfill, to Jesus and his bride, his people, together with me where I am. And we know that lands up in the new heaven and the new earth. Mission completed is a phrase for the future. So he keeps praying in verse 25 to his righteous father, determined that we should, verse 26, know you, the father, experience the love you have for me in them. Discover the reality of Jesus that I myself may be in them. I mean, what a destiny to look forward to. What a destination to be heading to. And what a long way to go. I mean, that has to have been in our minds, doesn't it? Not there yet would be a great British understatement. Church united, world persuaded, mission completed. <laughs> Not there yet. I've only got to look in the mirror to know what a change would be needed in me. If we were in Christchurch back uh, as per normal, you'd only have to have a quick glance round to see what a change would be needed in us. You don't have to look at whoever's sharing the sofa with you to be able to say that as well. What an encouragement, though. Someone praying for us. Not just anyone praying, and not just praying anything. But church united, well persuaded, mission completed. That's the journey we've stepped out into. And Christ prays us through step by step. So as you step out into this next week, take this truth with you. Jesus has been praying for us. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for those who taught us the gospel message. May your spirit work your unity with the Son into our living and loving together. May the world see the reality of that life and know the truth about Jesus. And may we be people with a heart longing to be with Jesus, to see his glory for his name's sake. Amen.